0: Good afternoon. I uh, hope you're doing well. Uh, welcome to the kids who are here, which is not normal. Uh, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're glad to see you here with us. Um, this is Zoe Community Church. It's not the Methodist Church, just uh, FYI. Um, we're continuing our series, Stories That Teach, on the Parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And there's actually a bunch of parables in Luke. We were originally going to do seven of them. Thought that was a good, complete number seven. Um, but today, I don't no one's counting, but today is actually the eighth week, and we're going to do 10, we decided. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is the parables are just so good, and we didn't want to stop. Uh, that's really what it was. We figured, why not just keep going? I don't know when we're going to be back in Luke. Uh, but the other reason, uh, the other main reason is what James brought up, he mentioned, and what Pastor Eric talked about last week at the members meeting, if you were there no shame if you weren't there i wasn't even there uh, i was uh, out of town um so hopefully they didn't say anything about me uh but at the members meeting pastor eric let everyone know that we're going to start raising money for a building fund now before you get too excited i see you guys getting really excited i see people getting their wallets out ready to throw their money at me um we don't have a building yet okay there's nothing like that we're that we've seen there's no like building we're trying to bid on or anything like that uh really what we're trying to do is we're trying to prepare ourselves. We're trying to get ahead of the curve a little bit. Uh we want to make sure that we're ready for the future, uh even though it's not necessarily urgent right now. And how the parables tie into that is uh if you've been here for the parables, uh, when it comes to thing, things like raising money or uh trying to, you know, look at property and, and trying to figure out, you know, what would be good, how things should look, how we should use a space, you know, for the ministry and for other things. when it comes to stuff like that, I think it's really easy for us to be just all business, right? Like we talk about all the uses. We talk about how we're going to build a gym to like reach the, the neighborhood. And so I could show off my game and stuff like that. And we talk about, you know, like getting a big thermometer up here. And then we're going to show how it keeps like getting hotter as you guys give more money stuff, like, you know, like we still might do that. I don't know. I'm not in charge of that kind of stuff. Uh, it's a little funny. But really, I think it's easy to just keep it at kind of that business level. Just talk about needs, talk about uses, trying to get people pumped about it, talking about numbers, the bottom line. Uh, but we want to make sure that even as we begin to think about it, that we're thinking in terms of a kingdom of God perspective. And that's what the parables are really about. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you've seen it. It's about stewardship. It's about living in light of eternity and not just for now. It's about thinking about how to use your life for the glory of God. It's about grace. It's about grace. So as we prepare for this, I, I'm not trying to like over-spiritualize it or anything like that, but I want us to have the right attitude and the right perspective going into this. Uh, I want us to think theologically and biblically. I want us to be theologically sound and biblically saturated when it comes to what a building might mean for us as a church. Because it's going to change things, right? Once we have a building, Lord willing, if we do have one, it's going to be super easy to think about the building as Zoe Church and not the people. But the church is the people. It's not the building. It's not the ministries we do. It's not the organization at the end of the day. It's the assembly of the people that God has gathered here to worship together. So we're going to go a little longer in the parable series. I think some of the later parables in Luke really speak to this in a good way. So we're going to go 10 weeks and then we'll begin the next book that we're going to do. I know it's a secret. Get excited in your heart. Three more weeks. Okay. Luke 18. Did I say that already? Luke 18. That's where we're going to be. Luke chapter 18. Let me read for us. It's the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 8. Let me read, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. And we'll try to be mindful of the kids being here. Luke 18, starting in verse 1. I'll give you a second to get there. Luke 18, starting in verse 1. Luke writes, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, as we sang, we want to live, we want to walk by faith and not by sight. God, but we know that faith actually helps us to see things that are truly there that we are usually blind to. Faith allows us to see you're working in this world. You're working in the church. You're working in our lives. So, God, I pray that you would open our eyes again. I pray that you would open our hearts. I pray that you would use this time to help us, God, to build us up, to convict us even, to change us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. For the longest time, most people thought that human beings would never be able to fly. It it was just obvious, right? Like, how could human beings fly? We don't have wings, right? We can't just flap our arms and lift up off the ground. In fact, the New York Times infamously predicted that it would take 1 to 10 million years before human beings would invent a way, a contraption to defy gravity, where we would be able to take flight. And the funny thing about that was that prediction was just nine weeks before the Wright brothers flew the first plane in 1903. And once that happened, everything changed. Okay, what people thought was possible changed. People before thought it was just obviously impossible, but now people realized it could happen and they crunched the numbers, they did the physics and the math, and they figured that we could actually build planes and let's see how fast we can go. And after that first flight, airplane technology took off, no pun intended, to the point where planes were used in World War I. They were a necessity for victory in World War II. And then after that, aircraft just kept getting faster and faster and faster as they developed rocket technology. Now, here's where things got a little strange. As newer planes started to go faster and faster, as they attached jet engines to these planes and kept pushing the limit, When they got to what is called supersonic today, the speed of sound, when they got right up against that barrier, the plane started acting super weird. Okay, theoretically, you should be able to fly that fast. There's nothing really stopping you. But when they got to the sound barrier, pilots reported that there was this enormous pressure that they would feel. There would be these shock waves that would come off of the planes and the instruments wouldn't work right. So they kept testing it, they kept trying to push that barrier, but as time went on, they kept falling back. It seemed too scary, it didn't seem right. And then a pilot died attempting to break the sound barrier, and this caused a lot of people to give up. In fact, I was reading some accounts of the first supersonic flight, I'll get there later. Um, but Americans love some uh, good old-fashioned American propaganda. And there they talk about how the British were too scared and they gave up. But Americans weren't. And we just pushed our way to the sound barrier. But here's the thing. People did give up. The British government officially gave up on testing this. But the thing was, faster than sound travel was possible. This is why things were so crazy. It was possible. The numbers checked out. On paper, supersonic flight was doable. It should be just right there. But when the test pilot was in the cockpit and they started to push it, 600 miles an hour, 700, 750, the inevitable shaking would happen. The pilot's instruments would kind of start going haywire, and they would feel this enormous pressure and scared. The test pilot would back off, just in case. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like the Christian life should be easier than it is? Have you ever felt like the Christian life should be easier than it is? Because on paper, you might read certain things in the Bible. You might read certain verses. You might know some of them by heart. On paper, Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? On paper, asking you shall receive, knock and the door will be opened unto you. On paper, behold, I am with you always, Jesus said, even until the end of the age. And maybe there were times where you felt like it was smooth sailing or you were flying high. Again, no pun intended. You were doing well in your Christian life. What you prayed for was answered quickly. Maybe you were going through something and and uh, there was no way that you should have had the peace that you had. But there was something unexplainable, something supernatural, a peace that transcends understanding. Maybe there were times where you were firing on all cylinders. You wanted to read the Bible. You got up early to pray. You enjoyed it. You wanted to share your faith. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know, and maybe you've discovered by now that that's not how it always is. On paper, yeah, Christianity should be one thing, but in real life, it's a different story. In fact, when I talk to people who are Christians, this is what they share. It's not all rainbows and butterflies. Everything's going great. My marriage is awesome. Parenting is a breeze. I'm on fire for Christ. There are times when it seems like sin is getting the upper hand. Things that I used to struggle with, that I thought I conquered, now they're coming back into my life. There are times when it seems like the world is just falling apart. I look around and I know God is sovereign. I know God is in control of everything. And yet, it doesn't really feel like there's a plan or that God is present or that he's helping us. And here's something that's extremely common amongst Christians. It's this experience of praying. Because you hear a message about prayer, you know, you hear about how, you know, ask anything in Jesus' name and he will give it to you. That was in the scripture reading. So Christians pray, and they pray for things that are good. They pray for help in life. Pray. They pray for the salvation of a family member or a friend. They pray for uh, parenting. They pray for their kids. And yet it feels like there's nothing happening. It might even seem like there's no one even listening. And the struggle for a lot of Christians is, after a while of being a Christian, is, is this even real? Like, I know I had an experience. I know I made a decision or whatever. I know that there was some transformation in my life. But that was in the rearview mirror. Is this even real? And you don't have to be a Christian here to wonder that. If you're not a Christian here, we're glad you're visiting with us. I know that people sometimes check out church or you come because, you know, a friend or family member invited you, a neighbor. We're glad you're here. For you, if you're willing to come to church, I'm sure this is on your mind. Is this even real? Because Christians, I mean, I know them, right? Like they talk about how they have all this joy in the Lord and how God is working in their lives, but they seem to have the same issues and same problems that I do. Is it even real? Then of course, we have the kids here for family service. We want to welcome the kids. None of them are even listening or even looking at me. Uh, funny story, actually. I was just thinking about that this morning. I remember, uh, I think it was last year, uh, I told our kids that there's no children's ministry today. You're going to be in service. And then I think one of them said, are you preaching today? And I said, yes. And then they all said, no. <laughs> so uh, you can take that however you want. Uh, prophet has no honor, right, in his home. Um, out of the mouth of babes, at least I'm humble. Okay. Because of that, hopefully. Um, but kids here, this is what you're going to start wondering yourselves as you get older. And I speak to the parents here. I mean, you have your kids here and you know, maybe they're a handful and they're, they're doing stuff. They're not paying attention. It's okay. But as they get older, this will be the issue. Is God real? Or is it just something that my parents believed? For you guys as parents, that's where you're going to be trying to convince them of, that it's not just something that me and mom or me and dad or whoever are into. This is for real. You need to believe this for yourself. This is the issue, really. Is God even real? Is Jesus even real? Is Christianity even real? Is salvation even real? And maybe the reason it's an issue is because it'll sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, feel like it's not. And this is what the parable is about today. See, on paper, yeah, certain things should happen, but in the trials and tribulations and turbulence, pun intended this time of life, it's not always easy. Now, okay, this is the eighth parable we've looked at. Maybe you've detected a pattern, if you've been listening to some of them at least. Each of the parables isn't told in a vacuum. Okay, there's always a situation that prompts the parable. There's always a reason why Jesus tells it. He's not just telling stories that he thinks are interesting. Each parable was told with a purpose. Each one has a point. And the situation the parables are told in is often just as important as the parable itself. Jesus used these stories to teach. And not just interesting life lessons or practical advice to how to have your best life now. But deep spiritual truths about the most important eternal things. And here in Luke 18, we weren't even going to do this parable, but I'm glad we're doing it. Here in Luke 18, he gets to something we haven't really seen thus far in Luke in any of the parables already. This is a parable not for the crowds to weed people out. You know, it's not just for unbelievers to make a decision or for hypocrites to repent or something like that. This is a parable for his own followers who Jesus knows will need help. So this is very applicable to every Christian here. Let's get into it. Let's try to make this snappy. We're going to look at this in three parts. Okay, this text. First, the purpose. The purpose. This is about why Jesus decided to tell the parable. Luke actually gives us the purpose of the parable. Look at verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Okay, this is interesting because usually there's some mystery to the parables. Okay, like Jesus will say something, and he'll, it, we, we don't know exactly what it means. We have to dig a little bit. But here, Jesus not only explains it at the end, but Luke actually gives us at the beginning the reason why he tells it. The purpose is to encourage them, the disciples, to always pray and not lose heart. Now, why would he need to tell them this? we got to go back in time a little bit to Luke 11. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke 11, just a few chapters back. I want to show you something. Luke chapter 11. Go to the beginning of this chapter. Luke 11. So in Luke 11, just to give you the context a little bit, Jesus is praying as he often does. And the disciples see him praying and they notice that there's something different about his prayers. So they ask him when he's done to teach them to pray. Look at verse one. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray pray as John, as John the Baptist taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. You can stop there. This is a variation. This is Luke's version of the famous Lord's Prayer that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a model, okay? It's an outline. A lot, of the, a lot of the ingredients of faithful prayer are right here. There's adoration, hallowed be your name. There's worship of God. There's confession, forgive us our sins. There's supplication, asking for daily bread. But I want to draw your attention specifically to verse 2. What does it say in the second line of the prayer? Verse 2, the second line. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Why pray that? What does that mean? Well, something we have to understand, and I know that this is legwork, but if you could just bear with me. Something we have to understand when we read the New Testament is the level of messianic expectation that the Jewish people had at the time of Jesus. Okay, messianic expectation. The Jewish people believed that God would send a Messiah, okay, a chosen one, the anointed one, who would deliver them. And this expectation was multifaceted. Okay, they believed in the prophecy, they believed in the Davidic covenant, they believed that a king in the line of David would be born who would be the true king of their people. They also believed that this king would save them in some way. He would deliver them from their problems. He would make all the wrongs right. And there were certain military and political kind of uh, aspects to this. They they thought that he would at least deliver them from Roman oppression, that he would free them to be their own country again. Of course, there was a spiritual expectation too. They believed that a new Moses would arise, someone who could teach them about God, a new prophet. They expected that the Messiah would usher in a new age where he would redeem his own people spiritually and he would also judge the rest of the world, all the enemies of God's people. There would be a final judgment. If you wanted to summarize it though, the Messiah would bring in the kingdom of God. Now, of course, there was some variation to this and the expectations among different groups in Israel, but many believe the time was ripe. And this is why when you read the new Testament, you see people constantly asking him, who are you? Are you the Christ? Now, if you don't know kind of the Greek and Hebrew stuff, Messiah is a Hebrew term for anointed one Greek, uh, the Greek version of that. The Greek translation is Christ Christos. Okay. So Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, it's not his last name. When Jesus showed up, he's doing miracles. He's teaching in a way they had never heard before. People were wondering, is this it? Are you going to fix all of our problems? Because they had a lot of problems. People were suffering. They were God's chosen people. They believed in God. And yet God hadn't spoken to them in 400 years. They're wondering. Jesus shows up. He starts doing these things. And as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the chosen one. You know, kind of a side note, I, whenever we talk about Chosen One, it reminds me of the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, American evangelical pastors, for some reason, love talking about the Matrix. If you if you were around back then, you know what I'm talking about. You can go to any church in America, and you might hear the Bible, but for sure you would hear something about Neo and Morpheus and the One. But if you understand kind of that idea of the Chosen One that's in so many different Movies. You could take your pick. It's The Matrix or it's Lord of the Rings. That's probably a better one. I never want to talk about The Matrix again. If you look at any of these films or if you read books, you know King Arthur, that legend, the Chosen One. This is really, this is really what the Jewish people were, th- were thinking. They were hoping that there would be someone that God would send to deliver them. We understand this idea. It's why. Peter's confession is at the foundation of the church. What made Christians different was simple. They believed that Jesus actually was him. So Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter declared, you are the Christ. You are the, you're the chosen one. You're the Messiah. Is this making sense? Okay. You guys all get it. I felt like I had to say it, but what maybe we don't get. Okay. In light of all this is what does this have to do with anything in our passage? We'll go to Luke 17. Sorry, I just had to set the groundwork a little bit. But Luke 17, right before Luke 18, what does all that kingdom of God, Messiah, Christ stuff have to do with this parable we're looking at about a persistent widow? You got to understand that they lived in a world where things were going wrong and they thought the Messiah would fix things. They thought that if the kingdom of God came, everything would be okay their pain, their suffering, their oppression, their sin, their struggles, all of that would be done. History would end. Things would be good. Now, Luke 17, look what happens in verse 20. Some people don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Some people do. The Pharisees don't. Look at verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, the kingdom is already here. They expected the Messiah, and Jesus did do some things that were messianic. He taught, he healed, he cast out demons, but it was way too low-key for most. It was still debatable. It was still doubtable. Are we sure he's the Messiah Wouldn't he do more if he was actually going to make everything right? He didn't seem to be going worldwide. He's just sticking out as hanging out in Nazareth. But Jesus here says as plainly as he ever said anything, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's literally right here. If you had eyes to see, you could see it. It's just, you're blind. It's right here. And I'm sure they looked around, but what Jesus meant was the kingdom is here because the Christ is here. The King is here. I'm right here. And you're still not seeing it because you're not seeing correctly. Now look at verse 22. Jesus announces the kingdom. He says it's right here. But look at verse 22, right after. And this is the passage that leads right into the parable. And I promise we're almost at point two. And he said to the disciples, he turns from the Pharisees to his own followers. The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. Now, the son of man was one of Jesus' favorite terms for himself. I used to always think it was a reference to his humanity, that Jesus was both God and man. And if you know Hebrew, again, the word for man in Hebrew is Adam, right? Adam. Okay, Adam's name was literally man. So son of man, son of Adam, he's a human. But there's more to it than that. In the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, Daniel has a prophetic vision. And what he sees is the ancient of days. And this ties into the messianic expectation. God himself, the ancient of days gives the kingdom of God to someone called the son of man, the Christ, the Christ is the son of man. So Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of man. But what he says right here, after he tells the Pharisees, the kingdom is already here. He tells his own disciples, there will be a day when you will look for the son of man. You will look for me and you won't find me. It's kind of weird, right? I mean, Luke already is not the easiest book to understand, but it's strange. He says it's right here. Then he tells his followers who presumably can see you're not going to be able to find it. Keep reading verse 23. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the son of man be in his day. What is he talking about? He's saying, when I come back, it'll be obvious. It'll be like lightning in the sky. You won't have to look. But this brings up the obvious question. Okay, so are you going somewhere or what's the deal? He says, when I come back, when I come back, you're not going to have to look for me. He's right there. So there. Okay, so where where are you going? Are you going to be gone for long? Verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, okay, if you've been around church, if you're a Christian, you know what's going on. You've read the end of the book. You know that Jesus is the Messiah. You know that he will be rejected by his people later on. He'll be crucified on a cross. But this was all God's plan to die for the sins of the world. After he dies, he will rise again. And then he, uh, he ascends into heaven saying that he will return. See, there are two advents of the Christ. One time when he came to save us from our sin, the second time to judge the world and make everything right. They didn't know that the kingdom would appear in phases. So Jesus is letting them know. Now, um, this might seem unrelated, but when I was in college, I had a laptop computer. Um, I was kind of cutting edge on the technology. Just kidding. Um, but as computers do, it, it broke. And I'm not super handy. I know you might have thought I was. Um, but I have a friend. I had a friend who is really good at fixing things. He's good at fixing cars. Uh, he's good at fixing vacuum cleaners. He can fix computers. And because I had this friend, I thought that I would never have to worry about broken things ever again. Once I met him, I was done with having to take things to Best Buy or whatever or having to buy new things. He would just fix it for me free. I'm kind of a... I'm kind of a bad, inconsiderate guy like that, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, but I assumed I hit the jackpot. So I took my laptop to my friend, and I said it was broken. And he said, sorry, it's too broken. Uh, I can't fix it. You can imagine how shocked I was that he couldn't fix. I, I expected that I would be able to use that laptop that day. He said, you're going to have to buy a new laptop. So I did. A funny thing was, though, a few like months later, he said, actually, I could have fixed it. I just didn't want to. Um, it's funny because um, we're still friends. I still like literally see him every day. Um, he's a pastor at this church. Um, anyway, it's okay, man. Computers, they do break. Everything passes away. Um, this is a bit like how I imagine the disciples must have felt as they were beginning to process what Jesus was saying. Not that Jesus wasn't willing or was unable, but they had expected that now that Jesus was here and they believed in him, he was the Messiah, that everything was going to be fine and dandy. Things were going to be great. No more problems. So that's why when Jesus died, for instance, they were shocked why Jesus left. That was a bit, a bit shocking to you. Got to put yourselves in their sandals a little bit. Everything's going to be easy. The kingdom of God is among us. Everything's going to be fixed. All our problems are going to go away because the Messiah is here. But Jesus tells them he is going to go away for a little while. And even though things will be better in some aspects, not everything is going to be fixed. Not everything's going to be fixed. Theologians call this the already and not yet. Okay, I don't know if you've heard that term before. It's an important term when it comes to eschatology, the study of the end times, the theology of the end times. The already and not yet. That's what the scriptures teach about the kingdom of God right now. This is where we live in redemptive history. The kingdom has been inaugurated. It's begun. Jesus died for our sins. We have salvation and new life in Christ. There is newness. But at the same time, the old world is still around. We still struggle with the flesh. History isn't over yet. Things aren't going to be consummated. Things aren't going to be made new until Jesus returns. So here's the rub. Jesus says that, yes, the kingdom is among you. But as his followers, you'll still have to deal with the trials and tribulations and turbulence of life as we await his return. So Jesus told this parable to the effect that they would still keep on praying and not give up. Why? Because he knew that they were going to feel like giving up. He knew that they were going to feel this way. And The question is, have we ever felt this way? It's not an easy thing to confess in church. You know what? I just felt like walking away from God. All right, next prayer request. It's not like that. We don't even want to say that kind of, we don't want to verbalize that kind of doubt. But have you, just in your own heart of hearts, have you ever felt that way? Maybe you've been praying for someone to be saved for forever. And it just seems like they're further away than when you started praying. Or maybe you've been praying for strength for something in your life. I know a lot of people feel overwhelmed with busyness or just the different things we got to do. You've been praying for strength. You've been waking up early to bring it to the Lord, and yet you feel drier than you ever have. Maybe you're watching the news. You're just a glutton for punishment, and you see all the sin and suffering. You see the godlessness and grief, and there's a creeping doubt in your mind. Is God even in control? Is there a plan here? If God is real, why does he let these things keep going on? And we talked about that in the beginning. In the world of the already and not yet, giving up is a very present temptation. This is the second point. Quickly, the parable, which is about how we should live. Okay, the parable. Let's look at it. Verse 2. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Jesus goes out of his way to describe this judge as someone who cared nothing about integrity or reputation. Okay, because some people have strong consciences. They'll stand up against the crowd no matter what everyone else says because of what's right. There are other people who don't care about what's right. They just do whatever's popular, right? So they'll compromise, but they still want to do what everyone else is doing. This guy doesn't care about either. He doesn't care about people. He doesn't care about God. He only cares about himself. And when the judge is this corrupt, woe to anyone who needs justice in the city. Now, verse three, there's someone who needs justice. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now widows were some of the neediest people in ancient near Eastern society, along with orphans. It's why James one twenty seven says religion that is pure and undefiled before the, uh, before God, the father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress because they are the neediest people who can not pay you back. Widows and orphans had nothing. So we're introduced to someone who is in need. If you have any shred of compassion, you will try to help her. So right away, we know her situation isn't good. She goes to this judge asking for justice, and he refuses. Now, let's break that down. In English, it might not be immediately clear what she's asking. She says, give me justice against my adversary. Okay, is there some type of enemy here? What's going on? In Greek, it basically says the same thing. But if you understand the cultural context here, he's talking to Israelites. He's talking to Jewish people, his disciples, And if you read the Psalms, the Old Testament scriptures, this is a constant refrain. God, deliver me. Give me justice against my enemies. Deliver me from those who are against me. It's a Hebraic kind of idiom. It's a way of thinking. It's a shorthand for salvation and deliverance. doesn't really matter who the specific enemy is. Jesus doesn't say. There is no specific adversary. Basically, what she's asking is, can you please right my wrongs? There are legitimate bad things that have happened to me. And in this society, a lot of bad things could have happened to a widow. Maybe her husband was murdered or something. The, the implication is it's serious. It's not just like a civil offense. Something bad happened to her. She's asking, please make this right. Everyone can see that what happened to me was wrong. Please just do justice. And the word for just and the word for righteous in Greek are one and the same. Dikaios. Just do what's right. Look at the text again. It says, she kept on bringing it up. And this meant he knew about it. And not only did he know about it, look at verse 4, for a while he refused. This wasn't a mistake. It wasn't like he was stalling or trying to drag it out or he was lazy and he was going to get around to it later. He flat out refused to help her, a widow in need. This was despicable behavior. This was oxymoronic, an unjust judge. An immoral and really amoral man tasked with deciding matters of right and wrong. But keep reading verse four. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This happened for a while. Who knows how long that was, days, weeks, months. For a while he refused, but after a while, after she kept on persevering with the same request, he caves in. And it's specifically not because he had a change of heart. He's not convicted. It's not because he's worried about the PR. He doesn't care about that kind of stuff. It's simply because she keeps on bothering him. She's a leaky faucet. And as you know, a constant dripping of water, will eventually bore a hole even in stone. You know, when I was younger, I was given the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens. Uh, you might have read the adult version. I don't know. They felt like I was i was 24. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. I was a kid. I was a teen. Uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens. It's based on the seven habits of highly effective people. And it has some good practical advice on how to, you know, have effective habits and stuff like that. But one story that always stood out to me was about the author's son, and he was like a scrawny kid, um, and he really wanted to be an athlete. He wanted to be a football player, um, but he was really like weak, and he just wasn't big enough. So what he did was he dedicated himself to training. So he would go to sleep super early every night to try to maximize his recovery and growth. He'd go to bed at like nine o'clock at night, even throughout his teenage years. He was working out every single day. He was eating like doubled up meals. He was eating two breakfasts, two lunch, two dinners. And yet he said for the first like year or two years, nothing really changed. He said people would ask him, if you want to play football, why don't you eat more? He was like, I've been killing myself trying to eat more. I've been chugging milk at night. I've been, I've been doing everything I could possibly can. I'm so sore all the time. He was trying so hard and yet there were no results. This happened for, like I said, years. And then later on, after he didn't give up, when he hit his growth spurt, everything else started to fall into place. And he said that, okay, you know, he he got taller because he hit his growth spurt. He got a lot buffer. He was able to make varsity on the football team. He was a sprinter, all that. Um, and you know, I was inspired by that story. That's why I'm so fit. No, I'm just uh, I was I, kidding. That's not why I was inspired. Okay, I wasn't trying to work out, um, but I was inspired by that story because of the simple lesson. And it's the same lesson of this parable: perseverance works. It works. Because the thing about perseverance is it keeps going beyond the point where most people want to give up. This guy, this guy, this author's son, this football player, he wasn't seeing results. If he was walking by sight and not by faith, he would have given up. He would have said, working out doesn't work. I just have bad genetics, whatever it might be. And he never would have made it. In the same way, this woman... If she was walking by sight and not by faith, she would have given up. She would have said, this judge is the worst judge of all time. I've been showing up every day. I've shown up a dozen times. He doesn't even want to meet with me. I guess that's just how it is. We live in a cruel world. She kept going. This is what the parable is about. It's about perseverance. It's a simple parable. Jesus wants to show that even in small things, relatively Unspiritual things on the surface, perseverance works. So let me ask you this question Are you a quitter? And again, you know, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you or to hate on you or anything like that. The point of this, the purpose of this parable is to encourage, right? To keep you going. But I think it's important to sometimes pop the hood on your spiritual life and just do a little self examination. You know what I mean? Are you a quitter? Be someone who constantly starts new things. It could be in diet and exercise. I think that's an easy one to look at. It's some low hanging fruit. Constantly starting a new workout plan, a new diet. January is one thing. February, March is a new thing. What about like a Bible reading plan to be more spiritual, more spiritually attuned here? You start reading the Bible. I'm going to read the whole Bible in a year. And then by January 17th, It's already, you know, your plan and your Bible are collecting dust. Starting, you want to start to do family worship with your kids, but after a couple of weeks and a couple of challenging nights, the kids are tired, you're tired, they're acting up, you just give up on the whole thing. Would you say that your life is characterized by perseverance or by quitting? And if there is a pattern of quitting in your life, just ask yourself the simple question, why? Why? And this leads to the last point quickly. We'll do this quick. The point. Jesus actually explains what this parable is about. Look at the text. Verse 6. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. He says, hear what he said. Listen to what he just said. He said, even though I don't care about anything, I'm still going to do it because she persevered. I'm still going to give justice. Verse 7, and will what the unrighteous judge said, uh, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What is Jesus saying? What is Jesus saying? The passage begins with prayer. It ends with faith. This is what Jesus is getting at. This is the point. God is going to make everything right. It's going to happen sooner than you think. The issue isn't, will God do it? The issue is, will you believe it? The issue is faith. Because here's the thing about perseverance. Perseverance is tied to faith. Do You understand that? Perseverance walks by faith and not by sight. Because if you're only looking at your circumstances... If you're only looking at the immediate results of what's happening around you, then you wouldn't persevere. If this woman was basing her going to the unjust judge based on how many rejections she had, she said, okay, I'm going to go to him once. And if he says, no, I guess that's it. And she would have stopped. She keeps going to this unjust judge. She believes that it's going to happen. Prayer and faith are tied together. Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater Then, if you look at what he says afterwards. He says, the unrighteous judge gives justice to those who persevere and will not God, and this is again an argument from the lesser to the greater, will not God who actually is just, will not God who actually is gracious and kind, will he not give justice, will he not do what's right for his elect, and that word means chosen, Not just some stranger, but people he actually cares about. How much more will God give justice to those whom he has called? In fact, Jesus says he will do so speedily. And then he says, nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? When he actually comes, will anyone even believe it? And you could just end right there, but here's the rub. It's not an easy thing to believe. For a lot of reasons. It wasn't easy for them. You know how much the early disciples had to suffer for Jesus? That's why he told them this parable that they wouldn't give up. Remember the unjust judge and the widow who persevered. But even for us, it's hard in a different way. We live 2000 years after this parable was told, give or take a few decades. Jesus said, I'm going to come back soon. Justice is going to come speedily, and we're like, uh, it's been 2,000 years. It doesn't seem very soon. Do you know anyone who has ever fallen away from the faith? You know, we we speak about election and predestination and stuff like that. We could talk about those things, once saved, always saved, all that. But on a merely human level, on just a person-to-person level, a major reason why people we know walk away from the faith a lot of times is because they experience or they witness terrible suffering in the world, right? You know, like they see something, and they're like, if God was real and if God was good, God wouldn't allow that to happen in my life or in my friend's life or whoever. uh, This happened to a good friend of mine who went through some terrible stuff um, at the hands of Christians, right? At the hand of even someone who was in the ministry. Um, And my friend was saying uh, that uh, it's just impossible to believe in God after what they went through. My friend walks away from the faith. That's really a sad thing. But the thing was, after crying out day and night, my friend felt like it wasn't real because my friend would read texts like Luke 18. I don't know if this actually was the text read, but texts like it where it says justice is going to come speedily. Just ask, just pray, just don't give up. And yet it felt like God wasn't there. Now, However you feel about what I just said, whether you're tempted to dismiss it and justify God's existence or to agree wholeheartedly and say, yeah, maybe God isn't real. This is the tension of the passage. This is the tension of the already and uh, and not yet. Jesus says he is going away and he says to wait for him. But the expectation is it's not going to be easy and you're going to feel like you want to give up. Now in second Peter chapter three, this is the question. And I was going to have you turn there, but we need to end. 2 Peter 3, just a few years after Jesus ascended to heaven. Peter is writing to some Christians who have the exact same question. They're like, you know, I read the Bible and it says Jesus is coming back soon. And it's been like decades now and he hasn't come back. Peter writes, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Things are just the same every single day. Then he says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perish. He's talking about Noah's flood, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the godly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. See, here's the thing about God. Time works different for him. God is not bound by it. He is eternal. God doesn't live uh, trapped by the past and the future. There is a sense, and it's hard to wrap your mind around, there's a sense in which God is doing everything, everywhere, right now. God is talking to Moses on the mountain. God sees his son being crucified on Calvary. God is present with us in the small church in Allen, Texas. He's everywhere and every time. A thousand years isn't any different than a single day. So why didn't he return soon in the way we count soon? Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, here's the paradox. It'll take as long as it takes, and it'll happen sooner than you think. Because Peter goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, a thief in the night. It's taking so long because there are still people who need to be saved, people who need to repent. God is being patient toward us. He's letting us have time. At the same time, when Jesus does come, it's always going to be too soon for some people. It's always going to seem like it was too quick, like they didn't have enough time to repent. People still won't be ready. So here's the issue. Here's the point. It comes down to readiness. Will we believe that Jesus will do what he says he will do? Will we believe that God will make all things right? Will we pray like we believe because prayer is faith expressed? Really, it comes down to will you walk by faith or will you walk by sight? We'll close here. <clears throat> I know a lot of people are scared of flying. I know some people, they won't go in an airplane no matter what. But I also know that a lot of people I know who are scared of flying an airplane still go on airplanes. It's still preferable to driving for 30 hours or whatever it might be. And what they remind themselves, and maybe this is you, what they remind themselves is what's true on paper. The airplanes can fly. The airplanes are statistically safer and going in cars, hopefully this doesn't scare you from driving um, in the future. Hopefully, this, uh, I mean, our days are numbered. Okay, so we're all going to die. Anyway, going back to the sound barrier. It's the same thing when they finally broke the speed of sound. It came down to what was true on paper. October 14th, 1947, Chuck Yeager, you might remember this guy. He became the first pilot to ever fly beyond the speed of sound. The experimental aircraft he piloted clocked in at just over Mach 1. They said it could be done, and he did it. And I was reading about Chuck Yeager, and uh, he's an interesting guy. Um, but let me read to you something he said. He said, just before you break through the sound barrier, the cockpit shakes the most. And that was an interesting statement. That was an interesting quote. Just before you break the barrier, it actually is the most difficult. It's the most scary. And a lot of people had given up. Even though they knew on paper what was theoretically possible, what should be probable, what should be doable, they didn't want to keep going because it was difficult. Chuck Yeager said, yeah, it was difficult, And then he did it anyway. It wasn't that things were easy. It wasn't that things weren't scary. In fact, he probably experienced more pressure than anyone else ever had because he actually flew faster. But he still did it. And here's what he said, too. He said, I was always afraid of dying. Always. It was my fear that made me learn everything I could about my airplane and my emergency equipment and kept me flying respectful of my my machine, and always alert in the cockpit. In other words, it was his knowledge on paper that kept him going even when things seemed most out of control. And this is how it must be for us. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Where does faith come from? Romans 10 says, faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Jesus wants us to believe, even though things are going to be difficult, even though it's going to be hard to believe. So we need to grow our faith. I remember reading someone who said that the only way, or one of the only ways to grow in faith is to pray. And that's what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer. It's the Word of God. It's prayer. It's doing the things that we know we need to do so that we can have faith, so that we can be ready when Jesus returns. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, will we believe what's true on paper, even when life isn't going the way we thought it should? Will we believe that God is good even when the storms of life hit? Will we believe even when it's not easy? Will we persevere? Because that's how you walk by faith and not by sight. I pray that the answer is yes.